Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of news stories that we, you know, tell about nurses and other healthcare professionals doing, guess what, good and bad things. This week is definitely no exception. This is a particularly disturbing episode. I just want to say that up front. I also want to say thank you so much to the multitudes of people who have texted me, emailed me, sent me messages on Facebook, this story. I appreciate you. You know, you guys always think of me when you see these horribly depressing stories. I'm not sure what that says about me, but I know what it says about you. And that says that you, you know, obviously you guys are listeners and I appreciate you. I'd like to welcome my not guest hosts. They're not guests at all. They're family, Ben and Tom of the We'll Continue to Monitor podcast. Hey guys. Hey, glad to be back with you. And I think it is wonderful that when people see just horrible things in medicine, they're like, Tina, that's what we need to think of. Yes. Yeah. I have noticed a sharp uptake from family members that listen to We'll Continue to Monitor that every time something really disgusting happens, they're like, hey, what if you did a story about and then I just get a moment when I open my phone to whatever they have sent me. So yeah, it is a quite interesting dynamic to do these type of podcasts and then be like, oh, when something bad happens, I want you to know about it. So thank you. Yes. I thought of you first. (laughs) Whenever something bad happens in my life, I go, you know who needs to hear about this? Tom, Tina, or Ben. That's really who needs to hear this information. Yeah. Tom, Tina, and Ben, they're going to love this. (laughs) You know? Yeah. But no, I appreciate it so much. This particular story, you know, I just wish we didn't even have to talk. I wish it just never happened. And really, several years ago, when this girl was arrested, I remember when she was arrested, because I found the story then. In fact, I believe somebody sent it to me then. And it was so new. And I remember going and looking at the story, reading the accounts, and I may have even mentioned it just offhandedly in one of my episodes. But I said, you know, we are going to reserve judgment. We're not, we're going to assume, you know, innocent until proven guilty. And I really was hoping that this was not true, that there's just surely, surely this is not true. And I think it's just somehow in my brain, even though I've done so many of these stories that I know that these people exist, it's just still hard to accept. And, but, you know, it's not, the story is not completely complete, you know, played out yet. They are, this trial is still going on, but they said that the trial could last for like six months. And so I thought, let's go ahead and talk about it and get it out there. And then we can always do an update episode whenever it does come to a completion and we have a, a resolution to it. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, 
It's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast. And they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or Family Nurse Practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash goodnurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash goodnurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So this is the story, if you guys haven't guessed already, of Lucy Letby. Lucy was a children's nurse in the UK. She was born in 1990 in Westbourne Road, Chester, the United Kingdom. She graduated with a nursing degree from the University of Chester in 2011 and later secured a position in the neonatal ward at Countess of Chester Hospital. We call that the NICU the neonatal intensive care unit in particular. So the people closest to her have described her as awkward and geeky. Have you ever been described that way, Tom? I feel like maybe you Awkward have. and geeky? No. I've been called a lot of things. Maybe geeky, but, but not, not, not awkward and geeky. He's geeky. Yeah. yeah I mean, probably not awkward anymore, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I could go with the second one, but certainly not that first one, no. I feel like I'm awkward. I, I can be very awkward sometimes, and I know it. I feel it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't but, know what to say okay, right now. <laughs> but I think the important thing to ask in that situation is, do you feel awkward like you think you're awkward, or does that situation make you feel awkward? Because then it's not your fault. Yeah, I, like I don't want to be. I don't want right. to be out around a bunch of people. You know, as I get older, I just don't want to be. I don't think that makes me awkward. That just, I just don't want to mm-hmm. be around people. Well, that, I think that makes us healthcare yes, professionals. Yes, yeah, <laughs> maybe that would be the next appropriate thing. Yes. Yeah, because it's exhausting. It's so it exhausting when, you, when you, know. you have to be around people all day, and you choose to be around people all day. When you get home, I'm like, no. I don't want to be around anybody. So I get it. It makes sense. Yeah. So that's kind of the way people were describing her. And I don't know that they necessarily meant it as an insult. I don't think it's necessarily an insult. You know, it's just some for some people, I think that's almost, you know, that's just who they choose to be. It's if that makes sense, a persona. That they Sometimes I think it's just that person is not doing anything wrong, but they're not quite like you could tell that they're trying harder to do something like my wife is just an amazing person, but I would describe her as awkward. She just doesn't seem to always fit in smoothly where everybody else is just doing something. All of a sudden she'll just say something. You're like, Oh, that is not what we were talking about. So to me, that's when I think of awkward, it's never a bad thing. It's usually like a cute, like, Oh, like, look at them. They're like, right. It's just like a little step. They just look at things differently than we do. One of the things though, when we're near talk about these descriptions of let be and some of the other stories we've done, it always seems that's how these people are described. It's always like, oh, they're such a great, compassionate person. They're always so fun to be around. Oh, they're such a nice, you know, ray of sunshine. Almost always. Yeah, they did. There were many people who said she was a very kind-hearted person, an amazing person. She talked about how much she loved her job. She was seen as a dedicated nurse. 
Now, there were some people who worked with her who basically who called her, this is very creepy, a constant malevolent presence on the yeah, ward. That's, that, that's a description. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Especially in a NICU, that's the least description, least descriptive thing I want to hear about a nurse in a NICU. And I wonder if, it, you know, at some point they started suspecting and I, you know, I'm sure that at that point, by the time it gets to the point that people are like, you know, these things are happening and this person is always here, then I feel like that's going to, you know, it's going to color your perspective. You know, it's going to cause you to kind of see things differently if you're suspecting that, you know. So this hospital was a very busy hospital in the UK and the neonatal uh, unit had a comparable mortality rate to other area hospitals up until a point. But in January of 2015, there was an alarming increase in catastrophic events and mortality rates. And so the hospital staff became, you know, really obviously very puzzled at the unexpected and rapidly deteriorating condition of these dying infants. You know, it's one thing if it's expected, you know, if a patient is very, very sick and it's their life is sort of hanging in the balance and you you kind of warn the family, you know, this it's it could go either way or, you know, but that wasn't the case with a lot of these babies. They were doing fine. They were progressing. And then these catastrophic things were happening that were just inexplic- inexplicable. Um, and I think it's important that some of the medics also noted that they did not respond appropriately appropriately to resuscitation, or they equally and dramatically recovered. And right then and there, that's like one of the quotes I saw in the notes. And it just kind of should, I don't know at what point, it's easy to say now, looking back, but at that point in time, when do you start saying something seems wrong here? You know, especially in NICU, like you said, that's where the sick babies go. So babies being sick in the NICU shouldn't was isn't going to be the alarm. So I guess I don't know what things that they were looking for or what finally triggered them. Well, and I would say in this case also just kind of kudos to risk management and quality control because 20 years ago, they probably weren't monitoring mortality rates to that extent and wouldn't have noticed this uptick in cases to make them start becoming suspicious. So, I mean, as much flack as risk management gets, there are things like this that makes it more acceptable. Yes. And we definitely want them there doing this job for sure. Some of the other things, maybe (laughs) not so much. So there were hospital consultants that were looking tirelessly for causes of these deaths, this influx of deaths and near-death experiences. The consultants were able to find a common denominator for each of these cases. And it was the presence of a specific neonatal nurse. And then of course that was Lucy Levy. So now they're suspicious of this one person, you know, they start, it starts out like why all these deaths are happening and this piques their interest and they start looking into it. What is going on? I mean, could it be contaminated equipment? Could it be procedure, you know, processes that are in place that are dangerous that we're just not seeing? I mean, Uh, I'm sure that they are trying to consider everything. And then once they narrow it down, you know, they're looking for, you know, common denominators, and then they narrow it down to this person. I 
can't imagine being, I can't imagine being the person who says, hey, this one person is involved in every one of these episodes. And then no, now you know that this is the case. So you have a very strong suspicion and yet you know she still works there. You know, we were talking about great things that risk management did for the first time ever just a few minutes ago. But I want to point out something that they did in this case that they have not done in previous cases that likely has saved lots of children's lives. And that's once they figured this out, they went immediately to law enforcement who started an investigation to begin the process to arrest her. I mean, we literally just did a story where multiple, not just a hospital, multiple hospitals had the exact same suspicion and did nothing for fear of being wrong. Yes. Or, or who knows? A multitude of issues. And honestly, that's one of the reasons I think it was handled differently was hospitals in England do not rely on that. They are a socially funded hospital. Reporting things to the police will not affect them financially in any way versus here. Those hospitals may be looking at financial problems if they disclose that. So I want to say a big also kudos to the people involved that said, hey, there's a problem, and this is not something we are going to try and make go away. We need to get a whole law enforcement and see what's going on. So I think that there are babies alive today because they took that action. I agree. I totally agree. And Tom's talking about you know the episode that we did a couple of weeks ago. We did part one of the Charles Cullen story, and that, by the way, should have said this at the beginning of the episode, but that movie with two Academy Award-winning stars is going to be airing on Netflix next week on October 26th. And the three of us are going to get together and have a watch party. And we are just, any of you that want to just join us are absolutely welcome to do so. And we will be, if you want to do that, you should just go on, like I would say Instagram and follow us. And we'll be putting information on there about how to do it. Cause this is the first time we've ever done anything like this. So it's, it's going to be a little different, but I'm not afraid of doing things for the first time. Have you noticed that? No, not at all. That's not the word I would use. So afraid of trying new things is not not. in the uh, the description. Yeah, not at all. Does it get me in trouble? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, that's an endearing trait of people that like to jump before they look. It's like, well, sometimes this is going to hurt. It's going to be a great story. So I would like to welcome you guys t- to join us with the, for that watch party. That's going to be fun. It'll be on net- You'll have to have Netflix to be able to do it. I'm pretty sure you have to have a net- Netflix account to join in on that. But I think Ben said so he would give this- everybody his password, though, if they needed it. So Oh, okay. Just, that's good. Just He'll email just post Ben. It. At- anyway, okay. So, yeah, I mean, what the fuck are accounts, right? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, Netflix. Oh, don't gosh. cancel me. I <laughs> know. <laughs> now you've just gotten canceled. Oops. <laughs> Because, you know, we know that Netflix listens to this podcast, I'm sure. Hey, could be a sponsor. Could be a sponsor. Netflix, if you want to sponsor any of these podcasts, we'll give you some information when this show is over. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely will. So here they are. And, you know, we, as I just said, this these people, these investigators have pretty, I mean, they have a pretty strong suspicion that this woman is involved. But like you said, they did go to the police. They did the right thing. Thank goodness they did that. But it's not a matter of just going to law enforcement and then they go and arrest this person. They have to build a case. It's And I did I have seen a lot of people on social media saying, I don't understand. How could they continue to keep these babies at risk, allowing her to stay there? But the thing is, you can't just decide because there's a suspicion. You can't 
just say, hey, she's guilty based on these coincidences. You know, you have to build a case. You have to have evidence. And so while I understand the frustration of how could you allow this to happen, and, and it seems like it would be really unfair to the parents. I think if I was the parents, I would be really struggling with that. Like, I think I would be saying, hey, why didn't you, why didn't we know? Why didn't we know that there was a suspicion that there was a nurse, even if you didn't tell us who, that there was a suspicion? Because if I was a parent of a baby like that in the hospital, I would absolutely never, ever leave it alone with a, with anyone. I would be sure I was there all the time. And I don't care what your hospital policy is. I would be, there would be some, somebody there to watch over my baby. But, and I wonder, I just wonder what those, you know, what those parents are thinking. Well, you know, I can't like, even imagine being a parent and the hospital calling you later while you're grieving, maybe months, years later and say, oh, hey, your kid that died you know, law enforcement's investigating that as a possible murder now. I, mind blown. Yeah, to think that it was absolutely senseless. It was not supposed to happen. Because somehow in your mind, if, you know, if things happen naturally, you can accept that it's, for whatever reason, it happened. And you can almost say that's just the way that tri- that person's lifespan was that's how long it was meant to be. But when someone interrupts that, you don't know, you know, that because that is an unnatural death. It was, you know, that's a life interrupted that was not supposed to happen. It would, it seems like it would just torture your mind. I would just like to say for all the people that do say, you know, why didn't they go faster or ask those questions? I promise you, that the people investigating this that understood or suspected that she was the person doing this and they had to build more evidence to get this case, nobody wanted it to happen more or faster than the people investigating it. I mean, probably second place to the parents, obviously, but I'm talking people, that's their responsibility is to catch this person. Nobody wants to do it more than them. And so for all the people out there wondering, well, why didn't they? I promise you, if they could have and still been able to present an effective case to the prosecutor, they would have moved faster. They moved as fast as they could, especially when children are involved. And not just children, children at their weakest, you know, premature, sick babies in the NICU. I guarantee you those those investigators were doing everything they could. But as you said, they have to have a case. It does them no good to say, Lucy Levy did this. And we're going to arrest her, but then since we didn't get any evidence, there's no case, so she's going to go free and she's going to get to go do this somewhere else. Like, that's effectively what they were going to do. And so you do this for the children that have already been the victims. You take your time, you do it right, and you make sure the person that did it goes to jail. If in this, you know, since Lucy Levy is on trial, let's be fair. I mean, the trial has to conclude, but I'll be completely clear on how I feel about it. The evidence is pretty damning, and we're going to go over some more here shortly that it's even worse. Oh, yeah. It's still hard for me to accept as when I try to put myself in the place of the parents who had children that died after they suspected her. It is so hard for me to accept that my child had to be sacrificed in order to save a future child from being harmed. And I would honestly assume that there were safeguards at some point, like 
the nur- the police had the nurses double checking her work, you know, when she left the room. I don't know. I would assume that they did take precautions because again, this isn't just to pre- to get justice for the children that have been harmed. It's also to protect the future children from being harmed. And so I don't think that the police would reasonably allow her to stay in place that they couldn't ensure at least the safety of the children. So I'm sure they were trying to, but still somehow, you know, but before the suspicion, what caused them to be suspicious is that there were two babies who had, they, they found out had been intentionally poisoned with insulin because, and someone, one of my listeners actually messaged me and told me that you do not, they do not keep insulin at all in NICUs. They do not have it because it those babies are so tiny and they would be so sensitive to it it's almost unheard of for them to ever be given insulin like she she was saying the extremely rare times when she's had to give insulin it was like a full panel discussion of people to decide the exact dose you know of this because it's such a big deal so for these babies to have excessive amounts of insulin in their systems it was a hundred percent somebody did it on purpose. Clearly, yes, introduced. Yeah. I guess at the time though, you know, looking back, they, you know, they're like obviously something happened, but they did attribute it the the blood sugar drop to natural causes, which is doesn't make any sense. They had to go back and investigate. But I mean, who wants to even think that it's possible that a nurse is doing something like this? I guess it's just like the last place your mind is gonna go. Because nobody suspected it. Well, that might be part of the cover why some of these people choose this profession. You're in close quarters with people. People, You're in a trusted profession. It's no different in the United Kingdom than it is America. Nurses are a well-respected and highly you know, trusted profession. So once you go through all the training and education to become a nurse, people just assume that there's a washout process, I guess, or that the other nurses will protect them. And other nurses will protect you if they know. You know, But that's the thing is – these people are going to get away with it several times before other people start to suspect. And unfortunately, that's the trade-off. And that's where the bad things happen. Yeah. And this particular unit, you know, NICUs or neonatal intensive care units, these units are locked. They're locked down. Can't other, I can't just go walk on the NICU at the hospital where I work. It, it's you have to have a reason to be there, and then you have to, you know, scrub yourself down really good. You know, you have to wash your hands really good. You have to sign in. I don't know. It's just it's so incredibly strict and restricted. And so for them to when they when they started investigating these deaths, they looked back on the situation and they said, you know, in retrospect, you have a locked unit. Lucy Letby was there at the time that these infants were poisoned with insulin. And so to them, they're like, this is a no brainer. It had to have been her because she was the common denominator in all these. And she was there during that time. And I mean, I don't know how many nurses are on duty at a NICU or how many, I don't have any idea. It's just not my area whatsoever. But still, it's a limited amount. I mean, there's so only so many that you can choose from. So it probably would be relatively easy to say, well, you know, this is the one person who is the common denominator that threads through all of these different cases. Yeah, I'm sure looking at like schedules, you'd be able to say, oh, well, this Sentinel event happened on this shift. And you start cross-referencing the schedule and go, oh, well, there's one 
consistent common yeah well and to be fair though they're not just looking at that for people they're looking at that for anything was there a specific incubator being used was there a specific t piece you know was there a specific regulator for oxygen flow what if the babies weren't even getting oxygen so for people i hope people don't think like they just start doing this to nurses every time there's a mortality. What they're trying to do is this for everything and see what is common. And so I'm not shocked it happened with the nurse. I'm just shocked it took this many babies getting hurt for it to happen. There were also incidents where babies were injected with air. Of course, we know that's a air embolism. And other things were happening as well. There were siblings that were targeted there were times when babies were given too much milk. I think that's a phenomenon that a lot of people probably aren't aware of, that you can actually like overfeed. It seems like it should be common sense, but I could see people thinking, well, wouldn't you just throw it up? You know, you're if you ate too much or you drank too much, but you can overfeed and you can definitely take in too much water. And I think that's also something that people are shocked to find out. But that was one of the things that she knew that. You know, this, whoever was doing this knew that. And it was smart enough to look at it and say they could appear to be natural incidents. All things that were, the baby was maybe already having issues with, or they're getting fed with a feeding tube, you know, so it would be easy to put, you know, put too much formula in, but they're supposed to be getting the, it's not like they're not supposed to be getting the formula. So yeah, I could definitely... See that, and then using multiple, multiple avenues. That is one of the unique things about her versus the other people we've talked about, because we've covered this a couple of times where people do this. They tend to stick to one thing. You know, once they find that one significant, you know, factor that is able to, you know, end another person's life, they tend to stick with it. But the suspect in this case tends to switch up, which again, that's going to hinder the investigation a lot. If anything probably hindered them the most, it was likely that. Because once they figured out, oh, she's injecting babies with insulin, which as you pointed out earlier, shouldn't be there, that's an easy thing to find. Well, then they only found a couple. But other babies were still getting hurt. So then they had to start figuring out, was it an actual incident or was it because of her? I do not envy the people that had to go through this investigation. It must have been both traumatic because trying to figure it out, but also having to deal with what happened to these children. I mean, it couldn't have been good. Just torture. I mean, it's hard for us to just sit and have this conversation. I was really dreading it. But we clearly, if if we discuss these cases, because we are trying to shine a light on these dark things that happen and talk about it so that we can prevent it, then it would be, you know, I would definitely be remiss if I just decided on this one is just too hard. I don't want to talk about it because clearly it's important that we understand that this sort of thing can happen. And obviously it does happen. So in 2018, they did arrest her on suspicion of murdering eight babies while working there at Chester Hospital. She was rearrested in connection with uh, the attempted murder of three additional babies in June of 2019. And in November 2020, she was rearrested again. And again, remember, every time this would come up, it was like, you know, I would be like, oh, they arrested her again. What's going on? You know, it just seemed odd. Like they arrested her. Then again, the first time she was arrested, it seemed like there was a long time in between. And I almost wondered, like, has this just gone away? Did they decide there wasn't really any evidence? And I guess they were just 
taken. Anyway, obviously, the pandemic happened. But. Well, the pandemic. But I would also point out for your listeners in the United States to remember this happened in the United Kingdom. Their judicial system is not exactly like ours. So they have the police and investigators have actually very different rules that they have to play by than we would traditionally be prepared for. So things like a speedy trial and stuff like that are not exactly the same in Europe as they are here. So I just pointing that out from a law enforcement point of view is that sometimes we expect certain things because we've become accustomed to how the United States judicial system works. And that's not exactly how it works. So I was wondering about that myself. Was this just because of how they had to do court filings? Or was this because they finally dug up new evidence? I was never able to find that out. CBD Stat, they're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples. And I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis. And it really does help. That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they'll know that we sent you there. She was ultimately charged with eight counts of murder and 10 counts of attempted murder. And the trial is going on right now, as I said at the beginning of the episode of this episode, and they are saying it could possibly be six months before this comes to an end. She's maintained her innocence throughout the whole incident and saying she didn't do it. Last week, though, the prosecutors start putting their case on and start having people testify. And wow, article after article, I start seeing from the BBC and other news organizations where they are literally telling the testimony. There aren't cameras allowed in the courtroom, but they're telling you know the, what the what people are saying on the witness stand, and it is absolutely shocking. I mean, one of the most shocking pieces of evidence to come out, I think, personally, is that this post-it note that they felt, yeah, they went in Mm. after they arrested her and she was allowed to be the first time and she was allowed, you know, she was released and then at home, she apparently had written on some like a sticky note and some different things, just sort of like these ramblings, almost like you would in a diary, but instead of it being in an actual diary, she wrote it on these the sticky notes. And I it's I wonder if it wasn't an attempt to like she just needed to vent and she did it on the sticky notes because she wanted to throw them yeah, away. Like a doodle. You know, she wanted to get rid of them. She didn't want to put it in an actual diary. Right. Like I'll just I'll get this on here and then I'll throw it away. And then she just, you know, didn't remember to throw it away and or didn't expect to be arrested again when she was. And then once she was rearrested and they went in and searched her house, they found them. They found these sticky notes with these disturbing 
sentences and words and everything so, on there. I think it's really interesting that you said it's almost like she needed to, because honestly, that is a complete principle. When it, whenever someone watches like a documentary on police or they're doing an interrogation, that is actually one of the physical manifestations of why interrogations and interviews work is because eventually if the person's guilty, they do, they feel the physical need to like, hey, I got to get this off my chest. Or if you watch them after they confess, you can actually see them like almost decompress. Like they feel like weight is off their shoulders. So it, it's not really far-fetched at all to believe that she needed to let this go and she knew she couldn't tell anybody. So that post-it note that she forgot to throw away seems like a really spot on, you know, aspect of what's going on. That's why she was doing it. I don't think she was trying to confess it. I think she was going to get rid of the evidence. I just think she needed to do it. And like you said, she can't leave a journal. She can't leave, you know, right. you can't leave that stuff around. Yeah, I think that's why she did it on these little little notes that she could just throw away. Here's just some of the things that were written on this one post-it note. And here's a, you can find a picture of this online. I don't deserve to live. I killed them on purpose because I'm not good enough. I'm a horrible, evil person. I'll never have children. I'll never get married. And in capital letters, I am evil. I did this. There's a lot more written on there about, you know, I don't know, just saying all sorts of things. But one of the things that she did say is that she didn't do it, which is interesting. I think the actual quote is on there as I did nothing wrong. It's not that I didn't do it. It says I did nothing wrong. So maybe in her brain, she doesn't feel like this was wrong. She did the right thing for her. I think the most Again, for when I just looked at that post-it note, the most compelling thing was the word hate is in about 80 font bigger than everything else around it. It is clearly like dug into the paper. It's like thick, dark, where everything else looks like normal handwriting. And then approximately three to four millimeter circle is just, she had to have circled that thing hundreds of times, the word hate. And I'm just like, God, what kind of person... Oh, that is not normal action for a person to write all that stuff out on a post-it. I just, oof, that is, it is really actually disturbing to know what she's accused of and then see that post-it. You, it really sends a chill down your spine. Yeah, and apparently she was very stoic during the trial when the jurors were shown this post-it note. It was displayed on a large screen so that everyone could see it. Her legal team, though, said, that these letters do not show an admission of guilt, but rather they are a testament to her anguish. Her defense attorney, Ben Myers, said anyone with an ounce of human understanding would see the notes as the anguished outpouring of a young woman in fear and despair when she realizes the enormity of what is being said about her. I truly believe that she is, I do believe there's some anguish there. So I mean, I'm not, I don't think that's completely wrong. Because I zoomed in on a read of that, you know, and it's talking about how, you know, I'm in, I'm fearful and I'm alone. I don't deserve to live. I mean, those are all very statements that are made by someone who is obviously experiencing something. That, however, doesn't take away from the severity of the crimes that she's being accused of. And whenever it's words like I am evil, that's, that takes precedence over everything else, unfortunately. We have all not just the three of us 
every person listening to this have been in some types of situation where we're like, this looks really bad. It is completely innocent. And boy, do I have some stories about things that look terrible, <laughs> but they're absolutely not. But to feel anguish, to say all those things, but what you kind of alluded to earlier is what stuck out on my head is there's not anything that says I did not kill those children. Like that's never a sentence in there. I did nobody any harm is never a sentence in there. If you're so afraid of being found guilty, why wasn't the, why does everyone think I did this? Why wasn't that a sentence? You know, I never hurt anybody was never written down. I killed those children was written down, but not, I didn't kill those children, you know? So sometimes language is just that language, but sometimes you can read between the lines. And I would say that entire post-it is covered every centimeter in writing. And none of it says, I didn't do this, not once. So I guess if I was the defense attorney, I understand his job is to try and present his client in the best light. And that is exactly what he should be doing. And that is her right to have a good defense. But I find it really hard to look at that post-it and not see it for exactly the way it looks. Well, I, I do like to reserve judgment against people that, ha you know, their trial hasn't completed yet. And I usually try to not say how I feel one way or another. I will say, you know, that there are, there have been times, cases, stories, when I'm, say I'm watching like a 48 hours episode or the podcast serial, for example, where I'm listening to the story and I, at first I hear details that make me go, oh, he did it. Oh, okay. I see where this is going. He did it. And then something else is introduced and I'm like, wait, okay, back up. Maybe he didn't do it. And then you hear another detail. Wait, okay, he did it. And literally that podcast is one that you, it will keep you guessing like that over and over again. So I do understand that this can happen where, and that's why we are supposed to reserve judgment until the, until all of the evidence has been presented. But we're human beings. You, you, this evidence is there. I mean, that post to note is so incredibly incriminating and I, it's just, impossible for my mind to know that she wrote it. Because one thing that the defense attorney did not say is that she didn't write it. They didn't say that was not her writing. It's true. Very, very good point. So if she wrote that, I'm sorry. I just, it's so, it's impossible. It's just impossible for me to believe that innocent person would write those things, that an innocent person would at least, at the very least, if they're just in such anguish at people thinking those things of them, that they would say, people think I'm evil. They think I'm evil. They think I did this. None of that. And so everything that you said was just, to me, spot on and makes perfect sense. There was also some other things that were found when they did the those searches in her home. They found a large quantity of hospital paperwork related to many of the children's deaths and incidents that happened where they collapsed. Some paperwork also contained written names of her colleagues. And the police reportedly found an image of a sympathy card that she had sent to the family of one of her alleged victims. She sent a sympathy card and apparently took a picture of the sympathy card and they found a picture of this card. So who writes a sympathy card and then takes a picture so they can keep it as a memento? 
a serial killer that's trophy hunting. While the post-it note is disturbing, I think that evidence is more damning to her case. Because if you're going to say I did nothing wrong, why you got hospital records of the exact children that happened to die under your care in your home? Yeah, that's hard to explain. There's there's not a I can't come and granted I'm not a defense attorney. I cannot come up with a logical explanation to explain that away. You wanted to explain the way you want to explain away the post-it note? Sure, fine, okay. I'll give you that one. Pretty hard to explain the hospital records away. Because once she was arrested, she wasn't allowed to go back to the hospital anymore. Once she's arrested, she doesn't have access to those medical records. So what would make her... I mean, she already had them. Yeah, exactly. Take home... Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had It's. It almost sounds like she's reliving that... Yeah. Like, like Tom said, it's a trophy. Yeah, it's the trophy. That's why they take those objects. That's like why, you know, sometimes they find these serial killers. They're like, why do you have all their driver's license? Because they want to remember them. They want to relive that moment. And something tactile for some of these cases. I'm certainly not saying Miss Letby or whoever perpetrated these cases, you know, did this. But it is very common for them to have some type of trophy to remember the moment, the incident, something specific about it. And they usually do. And it's something tactile, like it can bring them back to it. It's not just the thought of it. It's actually something they can hold on to it. So that paperwork is a damning reminder of what happened. So is the picture. She's probably, and I know as troubling as this is going to sound, she's probably got more enjoyment thinking about the parents crying or being hurt like that probably heightened her sense about it well because they also said that they they also accused her of facebook stalking some of her alleged victims families so she was clearly you know if she was in fact doing that she's going through facebook and i'm sure if they're posting about their grief and what they're going through and how sad you know for um birthdays and and any kind of milestones that would have happened that they're missing and you know and Oh my gosh, I just, it's so hard to understand someone's psyche like that. Clearly, if this is, if someone who is capable of doing something like this, there is something so incredibly wrong with them. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about that. I'm not saying that she should be found, you know, not guilty for reason of insanity. I would, I'm, I would not, I do not believe that. If she, in fact, did these things, I think she should be found guilty and just spend the rest of her life in prison. But I still feel like anyone capable of doing something like this, there's, I mean, something is not wired correctly. So one of the children that the, the prosecutors referred to as child I, as they labeled them by letters of alphabet because they didn't want to disclose their names, they, the prosecutor said that this particular child was an extreme example, even by the standards of this overall case. And this is so incredibly unbelievable that as we, the three of us were sitting here going over these notes before we started recording, I had to, I took like a double take. I could not, I couldn't believe it. I was very familiar with this story. I've read all the articles, but we do have someone that kind of does research for us, the infamous Bridget. And so she had done the research for us and kind of wrote up these notes. And I read this and I was like, wait, did I read this right? Did I? 
is, did this happen? Did this really happen? I can't. It's so disturbing. It's so incredibly disturbing what happened in this particular case, as if the other things were not bad enough. But she allegedly first attempted to inject air into this baby's stomach, but the infant survived that attack. And then after the third attempt on this baby's life, the baby was transferred to another hospital where it made an amazing recovery. However, the child was again apparently transported back to the original hospital and placed back in Letby's care for some reason. And so that baby's condition again started to deteriorate rapidly, required chest compressions, and the baby was born early and was very small, but was doing very well for the first two months of its life before she was taken care of by Letby. And so she ended up dying. She didn't make it after that, that, you know, fourth attempt. So after her death, her parents were taken to a private room and asked if they wanted to bathe her. And as the mother, as the baby's mother bathed baby who had, who had passed, Lucy Letby came into the room and the mother said that she was smiling, Lucy was smiling, and that she kept going on about how she was present at that baby's first bath and how much the child had loved it. It's just so sick and twisted. It's hard to imagine this. And this poor mother, you know, looking back on that, it's something that she's going to have, you know, relive over and over again, I'm sure, in her mind. And that's the baby that she sent the sympathy card to that was photographed and recovered at her home. If you look at it from a gratification standpoint, she's reliving that whole moment. There are few times when the English language doesn't have the right word to describe the level of rage that I hope that mother has towards uh, Miss Letby. I, too, find myself at a loss for words and what to say. And just the disgusting feeling that I have about this whole situation. And it's just so unbelievable. It's so incredibly disturbing. And I feel so much empathy for the parents in these cases. I, I can imagine, you know, myself when how excited I was when my babies were born and how much I loved them so much before they were ever born. You know, I loved them more than I could ever, more than I ever thought I could. I was like, how could I ever love them any more, you know, any more than I do? And they're not even born. And then they're born and you're just like, oh my gosh, you know, just the feeling, you know, and to think these parents are, you know, had to suffer that loss and that this was done deliberately to them is so hard. It's so hard. But the trial is continuing on. And as we said earlier, it could go on for six months. There, that that's pretty much. I think it's most of the evidence that's been released in the case so far, and um, we'll continue to follow it. Obviously, we'll have to come back and do an update at some point. I'm a little upset, Tina, that you missed the tagline there because you know Bridget wrote, "We will continue to monitor," and that was a great like throw to our show. We'll continue to follow it, and I was like, oh. weirdly enough, Ben, 
I just want to point out, I was thinking that when she said it, and I didn't read that notes. I was like, you could have just said, uh, or as they say, we'll continue to monitor <laughs> the situation, as one is want to say. <laughs> I'm trying to Sorry. say something funny at the end of the story because I'm I getting know, depressed. Good Lord. Yeah. I got it's, this is a bad bit. one. <laughs> oh, that's what I, I want your listeners to remember. When I think of really sad stories that make me want to puke, I hear Tom's voice in my head. That's awesome. Like, that's the tie-in. I really want to leave. So I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank goodness most of our stories aren't quite this dark. And I, I hope that we're all able to learn from it. I hope that hospitals and, you know, investigators and everyone is able to learn something to be able to prevent something like this from happening again. I wish there was some sort of weed out process as you were talking about, you know, you kind of alluded to that earlier. But unfortunately, there really isn't anything like that. Well, no, that there, there's no way to weed out something like this. All right. A psychopath or a sociopath, they're just going to go around it. So, I mean, don't wrong. I mean, any sort of screening process is okay with me. I don't care. I mean, we vaguely go through one when we get hired. I'm just saying, even if somebody said, why isn't there something more robust? I'm like, what? If there was, we would already had it. It's not like people have been for the last couple hundred years going, we should let crazy people work. You know, psych psychopaths should just be allowed to murder people. Like, if we had that technology or that testing, we would do it. So I feel terrible for the parents. I mean, anytime you lose a child is a tragedy. But for one to be taken and be taken by the person that was supposed to be helping them is like the ultimate, I feel like, betrayal. And maybe that's because I'm a parent and a nurse. I don't know. But it just seems so much worse that the nurse that was supposed to be helping them is really the one that hurt them. Like, it just, I don't know. It just leaves a, leaves a sour note. While it's such a, a huge stain, a huge blemish on the nursing profession, and we hate it. We absolutely, you know, hate that that this would happen. We can't pretend like it doesn't happen. And we all need to be aware that there are people like this out there that could do, you know, unfortunately do something like this. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. But you know what? 
we do have a good nurse story, and I'm really happy to be able to move on from that story and talk about this nurse, because this is interesting. It's not just a nurse. I feel like there's a, there are a lot of healthcare people in this story that we can applaud for what they did. This is about a nurse, a charge nurse, in fact, in Washington, who got so overwhelmed in the emergency department where she was working that she actually called 911 because she was desperate for help because they were so understaffed. So this article that I found from nurse.org actually says that, and this just came out, the article came out October the 14th, so just a few days ago as we're recording this. Apparently, this is St. Michael Medical Center in Washington that she called dispatchers, called 911. That's what really, I think, kind of shocks everybody. It's one thing to you know, call the back line, you know, call the non-emergency number. She called 911 and she said, we're drowning, saying they only had five nurses on duty and 45 patients in their waiting room. She was asking for help from local firefighters to come work inside of the ER to help relieve some of that pressure. So St. Michael's is the only hospital on the peninsula. And since July, there has been a dramatic increase in wait times, especially for the patients that are transferred via ambulance. So some ambulance crews are out on calls for more than six hours waiting to take a patient to the hospital. According to the fire chief, James Gillard, staffing issues are a major ongoing issue at the hospital and well known throughout the area. And as a result, it's caused stress on first responders. He said, we started noticing in July our wait times from the time we took a patient to the emergency department to the time we were able to transfer care was starting to get extended. So you guys, I have never worked in an emergency department before. I may know one or two people that I feel like you could talk. (laughs) I know. I feel like you guys could talk about this better than than I can, kind of speak to maybe what was going on or what she was feeling or... Two things actually came to my mind at the same time. It was just one of those lightning strike moments when I heard about the story, because I heard about this before we came on the air. The first one is she would rather have dropped dead than make that phone call is the very first thing I thought. That's an ER nurse is like, I don't need your help. And for her to make that call, I guarantee you she was... Ooh, she was probably not happy. She was like wet cat mad. Like you probably did not want to be around her at that moment in time. The second thing though was kudos to her because she knew she was getting screwed. Like she knew she had to do something. The water was breaking the dam as she took the appropriate action that she had available to her to get it done. Clearly every other department in her hospital didn't have the resources to help. So she called a bunch of guys that are probably just sleeping anyways and had them come over to help her out in the ER. So as much as I like to give paramedics a hard time, and I do like to give them a hard time, like that was a pretty incredible task to come in and help. And I'm glad they did. Yeah, they sent a crew to the hospital and two firefighters assisted for approximately an hour and a half and helped clean rooms and beds, moved patients throughout the hospital and took vital signs. You know, I feel like, as you know, what you're saying, I mean, it was really courageous for, of her to do that because I feel like she faced a lot oh, of, I'm sure. of backlash. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and criticism. And 
disciplinary action. Who knows? Yes. And well, and so let we should step back for a second. And so if some of your listeners don't know, many, many, many fire departments either have paramedics or require their firefighters to be paramedics. So the fact that she called the fire department really made sense because she needed paramedics. So, I mean, I, I get that. So if anybody wondered why she called the fire department, that's why. Most of those guys were already paramedics. They'd already worked in hospitals for training. They're well aware of the people. So it, it was a very good move. But I just can't get over the fact that everybody knew that this is the problem that while I like the story and it is a good nurse story, what's heartbreaking to me is the even the fire chief is going, this is a well-known problem. So clearly this is something that's been brewing for a while. And basically what they've done is the thing that we've talked about in previous shows is the nurses have always been able to make it work. So hospital admins have always never felt the need to fix the problem because we keep fixing it for them. And finally, this nurse done got tired of fixing it. <laughs> okay. So she, she did what I think she should have done based on what I've read, because like you said, she was drowning. Yeah. The fire chief said too, you know, this was a short term solution that we offered, but it's not a long term no, solution. The hospital is going to have to do something. But you know, you said something really interesting about the nurses just kind of absorbing anything that's put on them. That's what we've always done. We just absorb it. And that, this is what happens because, you know, we have a, a standard. What we know is a safe nurse to patient ratio. We everyone understands that. Everyone knows what is an acceptable nurse to patient ratio. And, yet we destroy and so it every day. it's established in hospital. Yeah. And so it's like, well, you should have one to two patients in the ICU. You should have this many, you know, in step down. You should have this many on med search. And so you have, you know, you have this established, but then what happens? The the charge nurse goes, Oh, they're telling me I have to add another patient. Sorry, you're going to have to take another one. I know it's not safe. And that number, like it goes from this is what's normal, but we're going to add one more to now that number is what's normal. And but we're going to add one more to now that number is what's normal, but we're going to add one more. That is what's happened over the years. Safe turned into, well, is it it's really? not the safest, yeah. but it's manageable. Yeah. Turned into, well, this is not feeling safe. Turned into, okay, this really isn't safe. Turned into, I quit. Yeah. Turned <laughs> in, well, and one other thing to point out is where in the hospital this happened at the ER. Because what you said is there are staffing ratios and the nurses can only take so much. But realistically, even the floors are finite. Eventually, if they only have 10 rooms on a floor, you can only give them 10 patients. You know, that's it. The ER is not subject to those rules, and the ER is governed by Imtala, which others are not, and so they literally cannot. So if a 1,000 people show up in their ER and they only have 12 beds, they, by law, have to see that 1,000 people. And so the ER nurse also has to – we accept that in a different way. And again, I floated. I worked in other departments. I love all the nurses. I could not do what floor nurses do every day. So big ups to them. This is no looking down on them in any way. I don't want to come across like that. But at some point, the number actually stops. And I worked ICU. Even if you gave me 10 patients, which I would have left, <laughs> but even if you gave me 10 patients, you can only give me 10. There's only 10 rooms. You know what I'm saying? ER, nope. If a bus full of nuns pull up in front of your building and they want to all get seen, you're going to see a busload of nuns. Like there is no way around that. And so, again, when your back is against the wall as an ER nurse, 
that's why you develop the toughened, I can do this, I don't need your help. Because if you don't, mentally, you're going to snap at some point. So again, I looking back and talking about this, I understand what that nurse did and why she did it. But I that's why I led off with, I guarantee you she did not want to do this. I guarantee you every part of her hated it. <laughs> so I've actually had an incident that happened to me that was very similar to this. In that I worked in a small rural ER and we generally staffed two nurses for, it was a, I believe it was a six, six or eight bed ER at that point. By six. Anyway, we staffed two nurses, one physician. The nurse that I worked with got fired about an hour into their shift. But the manager said, hey, I called everybody. No one can come in to help. Sorry about you. And the cliche, here's some pizza. Had pizza delivered to the ER. For Ben. <laughs> For me. And this just happened to be a horrible, horrible busy night. Again, six or eight bed ER, I don't recall. And at one point, I think we had... 12 to 15 patients that I'm running around managing, trying to manage. And one of the uh, ambulances had dropped a patient off and the paramedic stayed and helped me for the next several hours, discharging patients, cleaning rooms, very similar story to what the paramedics were doing in this situation. So shout out to Donnie. I still remember this whole thing. It was greatly appreciated because I was in this similar situation. I was drowning. Now, come to find out later on, when I talked to several of the nurses, I'm like, dude, you didn't, you know, you didn't want to come out and bail me out. No one ever called. So that's a, again a whole new, whole new caveat to that story that <laughs> is better told not not on the air, but yeah. But again, you notice he didn't call. <laughs> you know, so and again, that's not against this girl. I think she made the right call. I want to say that again, but I'm just saying like that is the ER mindset. We're like, uh, oh, set me on fire. Let's I will walk through the sprinklers. Yeah. OK, on my way to go get a new bag of IV fluids. OK, so that is very much. I'm not saying it's a good I'm not even saying it's a healthy for our own mindset, but literally that is how we get through the day. Yeah, it's really not. It's not. And I, I get my hands slapped all the time by from people who are like, you really shouldn't be glorifying like not going to the bathroom and stuff. Guys, I am not in any way, shape or form glorifying it. If I'm just talking about my reality, that is all I'm talking about. And the fact is, it is wrong. It is absolutely wrong that I would be required to work a 12 hour shift and literally not be able to go to the bathroom, not have the time to go to the bathroom, but not even honestly need to that bad. Because guess drink. what? I yeah. don't drink any water drink. either. Yeah. And it's not good. It's not appropriate. It is wrong. And we, and I know I get where they're coming from because I say it too. We should be putting our foot down. We should be insisting, no, somebody get your butt in here and take help take care of these patients somebody's responsible for these staff the staffing situation whoever that is get your butt in here and take a patient but you know we don't do that we just take the patients and i at some point and I, and we're at that point we are at i that think point. i agree 
We're yes. breaking. The system is breaking. And, and to point out what you were just saying, though, it, this isn't exclusive to ER. I did work in ICU, and I do remember getting, you know, a post, you know, heart and being like, well, this is not, this was a planned surgery. This was not new. Why were we not prepared for this? Why am I, basically, everybody just said, well, to make it work. I don't know how many people out there listening have ever taken care of a fresh post heart, but that is not a, you just do it situation, all right? That is not a fly by the seat of your pants type of patient. And we did make it work. And we had to for that person's life. But what I'm getting at is we should have never been put in the position to to do that. I know Ben and I were talking about being ER nurses, but it happened to me in ICU. It happened to girls when I floated and worked med surge. I'm telling you, for this is for the people that are listening. I have had to stop people and take the medicine out of their hand and be like, you can go pee. Like you, you can sit down for 30 seconds. I will go give them their medicine. But if I had not done that, they would have just continued their process. And that doesn't make me great. Other people did it for me too. What I'm saying though, is that's what nurses have to do is we literally have to tell each other, it's okay to hold off on ibuprofen for four minutes, you know, go pee get a drink of water, do something. And it's terrible, but that is where we've become. But unfortunately, what you said earlier is we've done it for so long, this has become the normal. Well, and the reality that we're living in right now in hospitals all across the country is that before the pandemic, we were dealing with understaffing, we were dealing with stress we were dealing with this is unsafe we were dealing with all of that and now it is at an, a level that it, you just cannot possibly understand i mean it's just these hospitals have there are no boundaries to what they will put on the staff and they and not only that it's like they put all this on the nurses and then they take away it's like you know well we just don't have anybody we don't have any nurse techs we don't have anyone to draw labs we don't have anyone to answer the phone yeah so I think, and you know, Mark, my husband and I, Mark's my sounding board a lot of times. I always say I try to keep things positive when I'm at work, try not to vent and be negative at work. I don't think that's helpful to me or my coworkers or my patients or any, you know, I just, I, so I try not to say things like, the, like this at work. It's one of the reasons I do the podcast because I need to be able to say this stuff, but it's not going to, I'm not going to fix anything standing there at the nurse's station and just, you know, leaking toxicity to other people and negativity. That doesn't really help anything. But the reality is that something is going to have to happen because it's just going to get worse. And I, I think that a lot of the hospitals think that we'll all level out and eventually the new grad nurses will t pick up the slack. I think our young nurses coming out of, of school, I think they're smarter than that. Honestly, I really do. I think this new generation is like, what? I'm not doing that. And they're just going to leave. Well, yeah. And that happened multiple times during the pandemic. As a matter of fact, there was a great story. I don't remember which news service did it, but it was about the University of Arkansas's system. And I think it was their chief medical officer did the interview. And he said, we're having nurses quit mid-shift. They're like, we're just done. We cannot do this anymore. And they are leaving. And I want to say, and this will be the last thing I'll mention about it, but I want to say this as a former ER supervisor, when you don't say something though, and I don't mean being toxic, but I mean, when people decide I'm going to be stoic, I'm going to just move on with my day. 
when they come and talk to me later on when I was a supervisor and they say, why didn't you do something about this? I'd be like, about what? And that's my point is if they don't know about it or they don't think you think it's a problem, they may not recognize it as the same thing as you do. And so for all the nurses out there, I do agree with Miss Tina. You should be positive. I think she's right. It doesn't do your patients any good to be toxic. But at the same time, I would say if you do have a problem, I would make sure that your charge or your supervisor or your manager knows how you feel about the situation. Yeah. You have to voice your concerns to the, in the uh, using the appropriate channel. So if you get an inappropriate patient load, if you are handed a situation that is unsafe, go through the proper channels. I mean, fill out a form that says this is not a safe situation. And we don't have that in Tennessee. Actually, I think it's only in two states. But yeah, still, there is that form. G- go yeah. on record. Go on record as saying, I do not believe this is safe. And I want I want to make my opinion known and that and I want to tell you that this is not safe. And if anything happens, it's not on me. Don't be afraid to tell your patients that there is a staffing problem. Yeah, if, Don't yeah. be afraid to say that. I, I just I just want to reiterate, I think not doing it toxically would be the appropriate because we're all under stress. Mm-hmm. Like Ms. Tina said, everybody's on a show. Yeah, so, I mean, venting and ranting about yeah. the general situation, I think, is what I'm talking yeah. about. But specific things that, that are going fixed. on right then and yes. there, you have to say something. I mean, if you're handed an unsafe situation, you need to speak up. You need to let people know this is unsafe and this is why in an appropriate way, in a professional way. And if your patients are having to wait extended amounts of time and they're saying, hey, I feel like you know, it's been a while since you were in here. I hit my call light and it's been like 25, 30 minutes. Don't be afraid to say, hey, you know what? I'm really sorry. I would have loved to have been in here. I didn't even know you hit your button because I was, I've was. i been in my other patient's room. Honestly, we're a little short staffed today, but we're doing the best we can to take care of you. And don't be afraid to say that because, and that's not what the hospital's going to tell you, but that's what I'm telling you. Because I think that's what the patients need to hear. I think they have a right to hear that. Because they want to know what's going on with our health care. So tell them. Well, you guys, thank you for recording another episode with me. I appreciate this. October 26th, we're watching The Good Nurse on Netflix. We will be posting that on Instagram. And if you want to follow us, we'll be, you know, we'll put some kind of information out there. And you can also send me an email directly. Some of you've already done that. You've already sent me a little message like, hey, I'm excited. So I'm really excited to get to to chat with you guys. We may even do something like like a little Zoom meeting before. Like we'll send a, if you want to send me your email, you can send me an email at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And if you do and say, hey, I want to be in the watch party, we might like send out a Zoom link before and just so we can kind of chat with everybody before we watch the movie. But then we'll we won't want to have video on while we're watching the movie because that would be distracting. We want everybody to be able to watch, but we'll have a chat. We'll have the chat so we can kind of chat with each other. So, and then who knows, maybe we'll jump back on the Zoom call afterwards or something. I don't know. We'll see. And then we'll have to do part two, not that night, because <laughs> we're old and we have to go to Like at some point, Tommy Boy is going to have to go to sleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they have to work the next day. I don't. All right. Well, thank you guys. Appreciate it so much. And we'll see you next time. Remind everybody, though, Ben, remind everybody where they can find you guys. We're at justinpodcast.com. 
You can find us our one podcast or just on podcast for advanced practitioners. Our other podcast as well. Continue to monitor. You can email us at us. It's JSP at justsomepodcast.com. That's right. And you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com. Email me at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com and on social media. Hey, guess what? Good nurse, bad nurse. <laughs> and I also want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Please, people. Be a good person. Good Lord. Good Lord.